Our theme this year has been Hope Starts Here, and we've been doing one lesson each month talking about the hope that is available in Christ Jesus, because after a year like last year, we need a little bit of hope, and that's what we've been looking at is what is given to us by God. Uh, We've talked about different aspects, important aspects of hope after failure. We've talked about hope after being tempted. Uh, And today we're going to look at how to have hope when we feel alone. Uh, During those lows in life, we can feel like we're alone as we're trying to be faithful. We're trying to endure a difficulty in the way that God wants us to. And it can just be an extraordinary challenge for us to deal with suffering, deal with trials, deal with various circumstances, still serve God uh, and not feel alone in the process. So we're going to be looking at Elijah's life from 1 Kings 19, as was just read for us in 1 Kings 19. And a little bit of context to 1 Kings 19 is helpful. I think it'd be fair to say that uh, 1 Kings 18 would be of the pinnacle of highs for Elijah, that Uh, It looks like everything has gone perfectly as you would have wanted. As the prophets of Baal have shown themselves to be complete failures after spending hours attempting to get their Baal to send fire down from heaven. There's been no answer. There's been no response. I love the text says, and no one cared. (laughs) Nothing happened. And then Elijah prays to God and God then sends fire down upon which the people of Israel cry out, the Lord is God. And the prophets of Baal are killed in accordance with the word of the Lord. And you would think now that this would be the they lived happily ever after that Israel now served God faithfully after this great scene on the mountain that Ahab and Jezebel reform and change their ways and come back to God and are repentant, realizing that those false gods and idols are nothing and now they will worship the true and living God. And Elijah gets the ticker tape parade of being the man who saved the day for Israel. But verse 1 begins that Ahab went home and told Jezebel everything that had happened on that mountain. And in particular, how those prophets of Baal had been executed on that mountain. And Jezebel sends a message to Elijah in verse 2 that basically says, you're not living for another 24 hours. You're a dead man. And there's reason to believe it. She has been killing the prophets of God for years. We were told in chapter 18 that a man within Ahab's administration uh, has been able, Obadiah has been able to hide the prophets of God and, and has been trying to keep them safe. It has been Jezebel's mission to kill the prophets of God. And now in verse two, Jezebel says, you're number one on my list. You're next. You're dead. May the God so help me that you're not dead by tomorrow. And you'll notice that his response in verse 3 is to essentially leave Israel altogether. He he is a prophet to Israel. We're told he leaves Israel. Verse 3, he goes to Beersheba, which is in Judah, 
But that's not far enough. Verse 3 says he leaves his servant there and goes a day journey further out of the boundaries of Judah into the wilderness. And he sits down under this desert shrub kind of tree. And he simply then says to God, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life for I am no better than my father's. And I think it is important for us to see what Elijah is doing and where he is at at this moment. Is that in this moment, I believe that Elijah sees that this is the end of the line. He believes what Jezebel says. Jezebel has been very successful at killing the prophets of God. And he believes now under this threat that Jezebel has given, my time is done. And so, Lord, better you than her. If we're going to have my life taken away, I give it up to you. And I think it is important to see that ultimately, I think where Elijah is at is that he believes that his efforts have accomplished nothing. It certainly looks that way. And you would think after something like this Mount Carmel experience where God has answered by fire and proven that the Lord is God and that there is no other, that that would be a defining moment for Israel's life when in fact it's changed nothing. It's changed nothing. Jezebel is all the more intent now to kill the prophets of God, especially then Elijah himself. And I think it is so great to watch how God handles Elijah through this sequence. Because the way that you see the compassion and grace of God through where Elijah's at, I think is extremely encouraging for us and instructive for us as well. You'll notice that we just simply see after saying those words to God in verse 4, It says in verse five that he just laid down under a broom tree and he goes to sleep and an angel touches him and simply says to him in verse five, arise and eat. Verse six, he says he looks and there is this bread and there is this water. So he ate and he drank and he lay down and again, verse seven, the angel of the Lord came to him a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. And so verse 8 explains that he arose and ate and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Horeb is another name for Sinai, that Elijah now is being sent by God on a journey down to Mount Sinai, the very place where the Ten Commandments were given, the very place where Israel encountered God on that mountain with fire and smoke, the very place where Moses encountered God on that mountain. Now Elijah is sent and to go all the way to Sinai. And so arise and eat, because if you don't eat, the journey is going to be too long. Eat this food and go the 40 days and 40 nights. I hope the 40 days and 40 nights, you kind of go, well, how fascinating is that? That's certainly the time of Moses on the mountain. It's the time of Jesus in the wilderness. It's the time now of Elijah who is going to go and he's going to encounter God. Verse 9, we're told that he goes to this cave and he's sleeping there and the word of the Lord comes to him with a very simple question. Elijah, what are you doing here? 
Now, I think I've misunderstood this question, and I'm going to try to look at this with a different lens. So I think I've often looked at this and said, well, God's just rebuking Elijah. What in the world are you doing here? Get back in there, get in the ring and get going. But I want you to realize as we consider what God is doing here is it's difficult to see this as a rebuke when God's the very one who told him to go here. Now, God is the one who said, go to Mount Sinai. This is the location I want you to go. Spend the 40 days and get on down there. And now Elijah is at the mountain. He's in a cave there on that mountain. And now God is asking the question, what are you doing here? And since Elijah's answer is not, well, you told me to. (laughs) Clearly something more is being asked. I think the more the idea is, well, what do you need? What do you need from me? What can I do for you? It would kind of be if I came to your home completely unannounced and I knocked on the door and said, hi, how you doing? And I started a number of formalities and talking about the weather and how things are nice. And eventually I think you would ask the question, what are you doing here? (laughs) Not that there's anything negative about that. Great to see you and all, but why are you here? What can I do for you? What are you looking for? I know you didn't just come here to come here. And I think that's what God is starting with Elijah here in this moment is, why are we at this moment? What can I do for you, Elijah? And Elijah's answer, I think, is absolutely wonderful as he expresses what is happening. When you look at verse 10, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. But the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. I want you to hear what Elijah says here, because I don't think that we should see Elijah giving a pity party and how bad things are going, but rather he's talking about the work of God and the covenant relationship with God. First, his answer is, I've been trying to do what you've sent me on a mission to do. I have been jealous for your work, for your name, for your cause. And we've seen that. that That's what Elijah is doing, is carrying out the will of God. But is it doing any good? The next line is, The people have forsaken your covenant. They have thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets. And I believe what Elijah is expressing is ultimately something to the effect of, I've been a failure. I haven't accomplished this grand reversal that we've been looking for. I haven't turned the hearts of the people back to you. They're still forsaking the covenant. Even after what happened on the mountain, the altars remain torn down. The people of God don't care about you. They're still killing your prophets. In fact, they're trying to kill me now. And all that's left is is me who's trying to do something to get the people to wake up and turn back to you, but they won't do it. I think what you see in in Elijah's answer is a great zeal for God. And yet at the same time is expressing it hasn't gone like I thought it would go. They haven't turned back. The signs that you have wielded on that mountain 
have not turned the hearts of the people back at all. They have forsaken the covenant. The altars stay torn down. And the prophets of God are still on the run. I think that's certainly appropriate based upon what God does next. In verse 11, he tells Elijah, I want you to go and stand on the mount before the Lord. It's very similar to Moses. Don't have time for that. But there's a lot of parallels to the Moses experience happening. And here you have then this amazing sequence that begins to unfold in this display of power where verse 11 says the Lord passed by and there was a great and strong wind that tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind and after the wind, the earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake and after the earthquake of fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. There is this imagery of this is how God arrives. It's awfully similar to what happens at Mount Sinai with Moses and the people. Remember in Exodus 19, the mountain is just shaking and rocking and fire and smoke and explosion in the arrival of God. Here comes the Lord. And there's a similar scene happening here as Elijah now comes to the mountain and God's presence is going to come. But each time it says that wasn't God. That's just the the warm up to God as the the wind and the earthquake and the fire. It's Mount Sinai shaking again like it had in Exodus. But God's not in that. Verse 12 says, and then after the fire. Just this sound of translations grapple with how to describe this. A whisper, a silence, a hush, just the absolute opposite of all of the power that was displayed on the mountain. Just a a hush of silence before Elijah. Elijah, verse 13, wraps his face in the cloak at the entrance of the cave there and notice God, after coming to him in that way, says in verse 13, so what are you doing here, Elijah? And again, notice that Elijah's answer is not, you told me to be here. The same back and forth is happening. God is saying, what do you want me to do for you? And Elijah's answer is the same. I have been trying to serve you. I am jealous for you. I have been trying to do your work, but Israel has forsaken the covenant and the altars are torn down and the prophets are being killed. And uh, it's just me left again, a declaration of failure It's not accomplishing your will. The people haven't turned back to you. And notice what God now says. Verse 15. The Lord said to him, go and return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Eloah, shall be anointed to, to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes... From the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Have you ever read that and said, now how is that an answer? 
to Elijah. God says, what are you doing here? Elijah says, Israel's forsaken the covenant. They're not doing what you've said. The altars are torn down. The covenant's forsaken. They don't care about you. So here's God's answer. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to anoint that guy to be king and that guy to be king and that guy to be prophet. There you go. Feel better? How is that an answer? Well, I want you to consider this is an answer in a number of ways. Number one, remember what Jezebel had said? You're dead. And God's answer is, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're going to anoint that guy in Syria and you're going to anoint that guy in Israel and you're going to anoint Elisha to be the next prophet. You've got more work to do. Your time is not done. I am not done with you in the work that is before you. There is more to be accomplished. You're going to walk right back into Judah and into Israel and you're going to be fine. Because implied you're not alone. And he even expresses it. There are 7,000 in Israel who are not Baal worshipers. There's still 7,000 back there. Now that might sound kind of encouraging, but imagine if you said, you know, in the country of the United States of America, there's still 7,000. <laughs> so don't read that quite as the woohoo <laughs> as it may sound. But you're not alone. That's what he's giving to Elijah right here. You're not done and you're not alone. There is more work to do and you are not by yourself in the task. We're going to anoint Elisha who's going to follow you and he will take over for you eventually. And he's going to help you. And there are more out there who are not bowed the knee, who are worshipers of God, who do care about God. And so I want to know to spend our time talking about the hope that is ultimately found and how God deals with Elijah, because that's the end of that whole sequence. That, that's it. Elijah's good to go and he's going to carry out his task all the way to Second Kings chapter one. So what did Elijah learn here? What was being given to him? How was this encouragement and how does this become a help for us? Number one, I think it is so important to see such a blessing to see. That when you have Elijah going out into the wilderness and laying down and simply saying to God, it's over, you might as well kill me. That God does not come to him and go, what is the matter with you? Get up and get in there. You are weak minded. Come on. You have to appreciate how God comes to Elijah there. You know, Elijah's pretty downtrodden and broken in this moment. And God doesn't condemn him or rebuke him or ridicule him or give him a whack around and go, you know, what's the matter with you? Come on, you're a prophet of God. I want us to see that he just simply doesn't dismiss how Elijah feels. He doesn't call him an idiot. He doesn't say, what's the matter? I think it is so precious to see that he doesn't condemn us when you have those spiritual lows. I think sometimes we can get pretty hard on ourselves about the times where we have those lows. 
where serving God is difficult, where the pressure of life is getting hard and you feel like you're all alone and you feel like it's all for nothing and it's all caving down around you and it doesn't seem like it's all working out and why am I trying to be righteous and why am I trying to serve God and nothing is changing and nobody that I talk to seems to care and you start feeling the weight of that and you don't ever have God coming to anybody in those moments in the scriptures, whacking them on the head and saying, what's the matter with you? In fact, I hope that we appreciate how many of the Psalms are the writers sounding just like Elijah. They sound like him all the time. Lord, I'm trying to serve you. Where are you? With the one we just did this morning. You have forgotten me. (laughs) Even though in the middle of it, he's saying, I know you're there, but I don't feel like it. And you never have God coming to us in those spiritual lows and just being hard on us. And sometimes we can be hard on ourselves in that moment of feeling like this is just not working out. And why am I continuing? And I just need to quit. And I want you to see that God is here for us in this moment and how Elijah responds to those feelings is very important because did you notice what Elijah did is he talked to God. He talked to God about how he felt on a number of occasions. But when he even goes to the wilderness, it's not just lay down in a cave in silence. Remember what he said. He comes to them and and, and says to, to God, it's enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And I understand him. He says, I'm no better than my father's or my ancestors. I have not been a success just like the ones before me have not been a success. There's been no success here in rescuing Israel. I'm no better. I've done nothing. They've torn down the altars. They've forsaken the covenant. They don't care about you. My work has been for naught. But Elijah's praying. He's talking to God about all that. And sometimes that's the most important thing that we forget Is when you're in those lows, when you feel alone, when you feel like it's been a waste, when you feel like you're serving God for nothing, to talk to God about that. To talk to God about that. Tell him, I just feel like this has been a waste. I feel like I'm wasting my time. I feel like nothing's happening. This doesn't seem to be working. Nothing's going on. And that's what Elijah's doing. This seems to be all for nothing, Lord. This seems to have zero success. You've sent me to be your prophet. And nothing's working. I think it's so powerful to see where God starts with Elijah in this moment and allows Elijah to express those feelings without condemnation to begin to grapple with the scene that is before him, which leads to what God wants to ultimately do next with Elijah that I think is so great is what Elijah is shown now is that he is not alone in two ways. First, Elijah, you're not alone because I, the Lord, am with you. That's the whole point of going all the way to Sinai. Why are we having to do this long trek? Except I want you to see I'm with you. I haven't left you. I haven't forsaken you. Here is the display of my power, not to scare you, but to know I'm still with you. And there are so many promises where God says that kind of thing to us. 
And one you probably know pretty well, and it's a sentence that I hold on to quite a bit, where God makes this wonderful promise, not only in the Old Covenant, but then quotes it again in the New, in Hebrews chapter 13. I'll never leave you or forsake you. It doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter how low that spiritual low is. I'm with you. I haven't left you. And God wanted to show that to Elijah. I'm here. Nothing's changed. I know things look bleak. But I'm here with you. And not only do you see him do that by showing himself, but also by telling Elijah, you're not the only one who's trying to do right. And we need to hear that. You're not the only one who's trying to do right. Elijah, I know that it's pretty bleak, but there are 7,000 who are still trying to do what's right. Now against the million or whatever few million that Israel would have at that point, that is certainly an outnumbering, but you're not alone. You're not by yourself. There are other people who are still serving God. And we must remember that when the world gets dark and you have the times where it seems like nobody cares and who is serving God and it's all just terrible and there's no hope whatsoever, that God is reminding us that there are others, others that we have never met, other people that we don't know who are in similar predicaments as us who are trying to do what's right. In fact, it is this very text that the, that the, the, the writer to, uh, to the Romans, the Apostle Paul, wants to really seize upon and uses this quote in a very powerful way. In Romans 11, verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, but you know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel. You see, this isn't a pity party. What does Paul say Elijah's doing? They're not serving you. I've tried to get them to serve you. They won't serve you. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself. I want to start with that phrase right there. God will always have a people. God always has a remnant. There are always a people who have not bowed the knee and seek to serve God. And we should never think that I alone am left. For God says, I'm preserving a people. I have kept for myself. There are others And please note how it goes. 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. What's the point, Apostle Paul? So too at the present time. There's a remnant chosen by grace. There is always the people of God somewhere. There is always the people of God somewhere. There are always people who are seeking to find the Lord and to serve him. And to do as he wants. This is the hope that is given to us. And friends, I hope that we would consider. This is a very big reason. I think why God gave us local assembling together. 
Because we can look around the room and go, I'm not by myself. I'm not by myself. There are people here in our own little community right here who are trying to serve God. And I don't know about all the other cities, but I guarantee you in all the other cities, there's another group of people that we've never met who can hear these same encouraging words. There's more that God has kept for himself as a remnant of grace. That we, friends, are not alone. I want you to realize that is what the writer of Hebrews means. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, a passage that's typically used to beat you over the head about go to church, you know, uh, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the habit of some, but the message of that was encourage one another as you see the day approaching. The whole point is not go to church. But the whole point is we need to see each other so that we can know we're not alone. You're not by yourself. And everything you went through Monday through Saturday, you're not alone. We're here for you. There's others who are trying to do what's right. Who are trying to stand up in the darkness. Who are trying to serve the Lord. And you are not by yourself in that effort. And so... I want us to think about what God is ultimately trying to show us in this beautiful scene as it unfolds for us. The final thing that you see Elijah told is simply that God has more for you to do. You know, Elijah is saying to God, this has been a complete waste of time. Nobody's serving you. Altars are torn down. Covenant's been violated. You did this wonderful scene on the mountain and nothing's changed. And God's answer was, go anoint that guy to be a king and go anoint that guy to be a king and go anoint that Elisha fellow to be a prophet. God has more for you to do. That's his message to him. You've got more to do. See, here's the problem. Elijah's definition of success was not the same as God's. See, Elijah's definition of success was all Israel is going to return and come back to God. And when it didn't happen, I'm no better than the fathers. I'm a failure. I've wasted my time. This has been no good. I'm useless. But I want you to see that God's definition was you're doing great, Elijah. Get back in there. Keep shining your light. Keep doing your work. Keep telling Ahab and Jezebel about what they're doing wrong. Keep appointing and anointing kings and appoint and anoint a prophet. Your work is not done. There is more work to be done. And so often what I think we can have the tendency to do is we can just look so far into the future of what we expect God to be doing and changing to the fact that we miss what God is doing right now and what we can do for God right here, right now. I, I know I have made that mistake so many times. And I think about the, the work, you know, God bless you people for letting me be here as long as I've been here. You all are wonderful. I won't tell you how long because it's been long. 
And there are so many times where I would be looking out this direction of the work that I'm trying to do and what I want for the work in West Palm Beach to be and the direction it needs to go. And here's this, this is, this is where it's got to go. This is where it's got to be, what it's got to be. We got to get here to this thing over here because we're not at this point over here that I'm a failure. It's not working out. And while I'm looking over here, God's doing all these great things that I'm not paying attention to. He's defining success over here and I'm not even looking at it. I'm looking out here somewhere else. And God's trying to tell me, stop looking over there. You know, that, that's what God did to Elijah right here. God's answer is not, don't worry, they'll rebuild all the altars and they'll never forsake the covenant. It's all going to get better. That wasn't the answer. That was not what was going to happen at all. Now, I want you to focus on what I have given to you today. Elijah, go back and you can go anoint that guy and that guy and that guy. And while you're doing it, no, you're not alone. That was the hope that was given, is that we would focus on what God wants us to do today, where we are, with the knowledge you have and the circumstances you face now with the abilities you have now. And I think as Christians, we get to spiritual lows because we want to be out here in the future with so much more abilities and so many better circumstances and so much more knowledge and I'd just be a such better Christian and why am I not out here, out here, out here, out here instead of just looking right here, right now with the knowledge you have, with the abilities you have, with the circumstances you face, with all that's going on what can you do for God today? Don't look at next week and next month and next year. What are you going to do for God today? God has you right here in this place for something to do for him today. And don't be discouraged by that. But God has you in that very place. I want to end by showing that's where what Jesus exemplified to us. Jesus showed us the exact same thing that you see God trying to show Elijah. In Luke chapter 22, verse 39, we read. And he came out and he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And he came to the place where he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. I like that Luke shares that with us. This is a difficult, crushing moment. You're on the brink of all of your disciples forsaking you and fleeing. You're on the brink of... Betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion. Jesus prays. And he's strengthened. But notice the next line is not, and now it's all better, and he had a smile on his face, and it was so much easier. And being in agony, I thought he just was strengthened. He was. He was. 
And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. There was a task that was right in front of him that moment. God strengthened him for the task. He accomplished the will of God. And that's what God did for Elijah. And that's what God does for you. To have hope so that you are not alone and do not feel alone is to understand our God knows exactly what we're experiencing. He knows what you're going through. And he went through all that. He prays earnestly. He is strengthened. And yet he continued to do the work that was given to him. And I want us just to see that God doesn't condemn us in the struggle. When Jesus goes out a stone's throw and he is in agony and he is weeping and praying, God's answer is not, what's the matter with you? Get up and do the work. It's not the answer to you either. Turn to God in prayer. Know that you're not alone. God's with you. Everybody here in this room's with you. You're not by yourself in this struggle. And know that you have more work that you can do for God this very day. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Father, we can be so discouraged by life. can be discouraged by our life circumstances. Things can become painful and difficult. Lord, our faith becomes challenged. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us as we turn to you. Lord, that you would encourage us, comfort us, strengthen us when we have those spiritual lows. When we feel like being a Christian is for nothing. When we feel like shining a light is for nothing. When we feel like being righteous and doing your will is for nothing. That you would encourage us. That you would strengthen our minds and strengthen our hearts to realize that it's not for nothing. Help us to always see that there is something for us to do for you. Remind us, Lord, that we are in the various places and circumstances that we are in to do your will, that we have purpose and reason in what we have before us. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us strongly in our efforts. Encourage our faithfulness, Lord. Help us to see how worth it it is to serve you, especially when our faith falters. And Lord, we praise you for being a compassionate God who understands our failings and understands our weaknesses. Lord, thank you for your son who experienced life like us so that we could have somebody who understands everything that we go through and through him that we can talk to you. So Lord, as we approach the days ahead that you would Encourage us all the more to see that you are with us. Remind us that you never leave us. And God, thank you for your amazing wisdom and amazing love to give us a group like we have here. To know that we are together in the struggle. 
and that we have a wonderful family through your son. Lord, forgive us for when we have given up and God, forgive us for having an improper definition of spiritual success sometimes. Forgive us and help us to see life through your eyes. Help us to see what we can do for you in ways that you only understand. In Jesus' name, amen.